Well, what a difference the right tool makes. What a difference the right tool makes. I'm the oldest of seven children, and my dad worked hard to provide for us. And as I reached my teen years, my dad often began uh, deer hunting as a way to hopefully put more food on the table and save on groceries. And so we had, I mean, I always, we always lived out in the rural outskirts of Hot Springs, Arkansas. There's lots of woods around there, so lots of places for my dad to hunt. And in order to maximize the savings, my dad would not only hunt the deer, but he'd often uh, process the deer himself. Uh, he's, he's a real DIY kind of person, so he, he would process the deer himself. And I was in my early teens. One morning I was uh, drowsily waking up one crisp autumn morning. I was getting ready for a day of homeschooling. But my sister Jessica and I were blissfully ignorant of the fact that our lesson that day would be on how not to process a deer, on how not to skin a buck. And I think I was still in bed when I heard the gunshot shatter the stillness of that morning calm. And the, and the shot was close to our house. And in fact, I can't, I can't remember if my dad shot the gun uh, from our kitchen table through the back door, if he, if he actually went out onto the back deck to shoot the, the buck. Nevertheless, this, this gunshot, I kind of tumble out of bed, still rubbing my eyes. I, I go upstairs, you know, what happened? And I discovered that my dad had shot a deer right in our backyard. So I got my shoes on uh, with my sister, and we helped him track it down. Uh, once we found it, my dad announced that he was due at work. And so then he calmly looked at my sister and I and he said, uh, Jessica, you and Ben are going to process this deer. Uh, just, it, you can do it. I, I believe in you. Like, I, I know you can do it. It might take some time, but you can do it. So he, he hung it up in a tree and he put us to work. We, and we didn't have to do all of the work. We were just going to skin it and, and put it into the ice chest. And then when he got home from work, he was going to finish the job. But there was a problem. All we had were utility knives. And I don't know if uh, those of you who are hunters at this moment, if you've ever tried to skin a buck with a utility knife, not exactly the right tool for the job. And unfortunately, we didn't know about those those nifty, you know, YouTube tutorials. We didn't have any experienced hunters uh, teaching us that trick with, you know, the golf ball and the pickup truck, and you can, like, skin a deer in, like, just a few minutes. So for the next six hours, with our inch-long utility knife blades, we, my sister and I, carved off hide and hair, inch by inch, little inch sections off this deer. By the end of that, I, I never wanted to see a deer again. <laughs> what a difference the right tool would have made. And I, I, I tell this story because sometimes with God, His ways kind of make us scratch our heads. God, why, why do you use people to accomplish your purposes in this world? Why would you use us? I mean, 
so often, more often than not, it seems like we just make a mess of things. Wouldn't it have made more sense for God just to do his work in this world by himself, without any, without using any people? Or maybe to send angels to do his work in this world? You know, why does he entrust to people to be his ambassadors and to share the gospel? Why does he commission us to go and make disciples of the nations? Why didn't he just send Gabriel and Michael the archangel? It would seem as though this wasn't the most efficient way, God. Why why use people? Why use us? If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Exodus 3. Turn with me to Exodus 3. Why would God use us? And this morning we're going to think about why did he use Moses? I'm kind of use this as a case study in thinking about why God uses human beings to do his work in this world. Turn with me to Exodus 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this text on page 43. Page 43. And uh, we're going to be reading a longer portion this morning because this next part of Exodus is really, it's one episode, if you will. It's one narrative. And as I was thinking about this, I, I was like, man, I could kind of break this story into two, but you'd kind of miss the flow of the story. And so we're going to read this morning, starting in Exodus 3, and we're going to read also half of chapter 4 as well. And so we're going to read that in order to get the flow of the story because it's really meant to be taken together. And, and the Holy Spirit inspired this account in order to teach us certain things. And as we look, take this story as a whole, some of those lessons are more easily seen. And so if you have your place, we're going to read starting in Exodus 3.1 down to chapter 4, verse 18. And so if you have your Bibles and if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Israelites oppress, with the, which with the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it on the ground. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said to him, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. 
If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I want us to read that to to feel the flow of the story. And just as we get started this morning, I'm going to just walk us through and point a few things out that need to be pointed out. And then, and then we'll draw a few lessons from this story this morning. We'll consider God as the Almighty Deliverer. And then we'll look at Moses, the weak instrument of deliverance. And then we'll consider the, the main lesson of the story and how it applies to us. So that's where we're going this morning. We'll walk through the story, and then we'll look at God, the Almighty Deliverer. We'll look at Moses, the weak instrument of his deliverance, and then we'll consider how this applies to us. So as we think about the way this story unfolds, you know, we, we started reading in chapter 3, verse 1, and it begins with Moses as a shepherd. He's keeping the flock of his father-in-law and he's still a sojourner in a foreign land, in Midian. Let that sink in for a moment. He's an old man, still at this time 80 years old, as we're told in Exodus 7.7. 7. And as an old man in a land not his own, he's keeping a flock that is not his own. These are his father-in-law's sheep. I mean, after all these years of work, it seems like, Moses hadn't really accomplished much. He's still basically an employee. He doesn't even have his own flocks that he's looking after. These are his father-in-law's sheep. He makes his living caring for other people's animals. But by Exodus 4, verse 18, where we ended this morning, Moses has respectfully put in his resignation, and he's been called to a new career path, a new calling at 80 years of age. A new calling from God himself, from leading the sheep of his father-in-law to leading the people of God, from commanding animals to commanding kings and nations on God's behalf. 
So what happens between Exodus 3.1 and Exodus 4.18? What happens is an encounter with God. It begins when Moses is pasturing the flock near the mountain called Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also known as Mount Sinai. And Moses is keeping the flock and he sees a bush that's on fire, a very famous scene in Scripture, and yet it's not consumed. And so Moses is drawn by curiosity to see this strange fire. And as he inches closer, God speaks to him by name, calls him by name from the midst of the flames. And God had meant the sight to draw Moses aside, and yet Moses wasn't to get too close. As we see in verse 5, this was holy ground. It was made holy ground because God himself was specially there at that moment. And so Moses had to approach with caution and not get too close. Because it's a dangerous thing for a sinful person to be in the presence of the holy God. God identifies himself to Moses in verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God identified himself in relation to Moses' own father here, as well as to Moses' forefathers, his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the Israelite nation, those forefathers who had been mentioned back at the end of chapter 2 in connection with that covenant that God had made with them, those promises that he'd made with them, to them, those promises to bring up their children from Egyptian slavery, from slavery in a land not their own, and to bring them to the land of Canaan. And so we see in this chapter God again referencing those covenant promises and identifying himself as the God who made those promises so many centuries before. And so God reveals himself to Moses. He reveals his intentions to Moses in verses uh, 7 through 9 of chapter 3. You know, what had taken place, what we thought about last week, what had taken place up in the court of heaven as God, as the, the cry of the people for rescue from their slavery, as it came up to God, and God, as it were, leaned in to listen. As he heard and as he saw their affliction, what happened in the court of heaven is now being disclosed and, and made known on the slopes of Mount Sinai. Their cry for rescue had come up to God, and now God, as verse 8 says, has come down to deliver them. But then comes the shocker for Moses. In chapter 3, verse 10, God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And from this verse on to the end of our text this morning, there's this back and forth between God and Moses. Moses asking questions. Moses coming up with excuses. Moses protesting. And God patiently reassuring him every step of the way. Giving him signs. Telling him what will happen. And so there's this... As, as you look at how this story unfolds, there's this dramatic tension that's building as Moses asks question after question, as he raises excuse after excuse. And, and at first, at first they're, 
they seem to be rather reasonable questions, but as the story goes on, by, by chapter 4, verse 13, it's like Moses is just unwilling, and God actually gets angry at him. And so that's kind of the tension of this story, and it's how will, God has called Moses to do this work, but Moses isn't willing. And so what now? What's going to happen? What's God going to do about this situation? What's going to happen to Moses? Now, as we look at how this, this tension builds throughout this story as God and Moses go back and forth, we just notice where Moses is at. You know, years earlier, he'd been quite willing to step forward and help to lead Israel those, those four decades earlier, back when he'd even slain that Egyptian taskmaster. But now Moses was a, was a broken man. A defeated man. A man with many insecurities. And though God continued to reassure him, Moses continued to question and to object until he finally just asked God to please send someone else. Now, we can perhaps relate to Moses' insecurities. He'd been deeply wounded by those he loved. Those who he'd, he'd put himself out for and in willingness to help. Those he'd risked everything for, and they'd rejected him. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? The man who'd once been so confident was now deeply shattered. God knew this. And yet God patiently reassured Moses time and time again And he calls this man, this old, shattered, insecure man, to lead his people. God revealed himself to Moses. God revealed his intention to Moses to deliver Israel. And then God revealed his method to Moses by by sending Moses himself to be his agent. God even reveals the outcome to Moses. He, He gives Moses kind of an itinerary. It shows him what to expect. That, that, and this, we see this at the end of chapter 3 in verses 16 through 22. He gives Moses these specific instructions, tells them that the, the elders of Israel and the people of Israel, they'll, they'll believe you. But then Pharaoh, Pharaoh's not going to listen. But then God tells them how this obstacle of Pharaoh's resistance will be overcome by God stretching out his hand to strike Egypt with his wonders, with the result that Pharaoh will finally relent and let the people go, and that the people would leave with great plunder, a fitting reward for their years of slavery. In chapter 3, Moses' initial response, when God first reveals his plan to send, to send him, is, is, who am I? And this, this initial question is, is fitting, and it doesn't necessarily mean that Moses was unwilling. We see other people in Scripture responding similarly when they're given a great honor. And sometimes even as they're accepting the great honor, it's just, it was a, in this culture, it was a polite and respectful way to respond. You know, who am I to receive this great honor? Moses' unwillingness isn't immediately clear, but as Moses continues to question and continues to come up with excuses, the tension builds. How much more convincing and comforting 
and reassuring will Moses need? How patient will God be with this man? Now at first in uh, chapter 4 verse 1, uh, you, you see how the questions of Moses, which at first may have seemed to be somewhat reasonable, they start to take on, uh, his true unwillingness starts to really come out. And Moses answered in chapter 4, verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now God had previously predicted that the people of Israel and their elders would listen to Moses. Back in chapter 3, verse 18. And God confidently spoke about what would happen. And so this question in chapter 4, verse 1 it may be just kind of Moses straight up doubting what God has just told him. Doubting God's words. Or it could be that Moses was just wanting to make sure he didn't miss anything. That's, that's a possibility as well. Perhaps Moses heard the part where God predicted the people would listen. And, and yet he's, he's maybe wondering, well, how's that going to be? Like, am I going to have to do some convincing first? Am I going to have to show them some signs? Whatever the case may be, God was patient with Moses' questions. And in chapter 4, verses 2 through, 2 through 9, he gives Moses these three signs with which to convince the people. But as God continues to reassure Moses, Moses' protests grow stronger. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, I am, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses didn't feel like he was equipped to go and talk to the king of Egypt, to talk to the leaders of Israel. Moses, God continues to reassure him though, responding in verse 11, for chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You know, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed my public speaking class at, at the uh, community college that I attended my first two years in college. But what would it be like to have God as your speech teacher? The one who made man's mouth. But then, as we see, Moses, he's run out of excuses. And in verse 13, his real unwillingness just finally comes clear. In verse, chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. At this, at this point, we read that God's anger burned against Moses. And when God, when God gets angry, that tells you Moses has crossed a line. God doesn't get angry without cause. Moses, at this point, evidently has sinned against God. Uh, he may have been in sin previously, but at this point, with the, the author is signaling to us Moses has gone too far at this point. And very clearly, God's anger burned against Moses. And why would that be? What did Moses do? I mean, you, you kind of understand. This guy's he's so insecure. He's, 
he's faced such disappointment and rejection? Why would God be angry? Well, as we've read, God had given Moses everything he could ask for. He'd given him signs and wonders and miracles to perform that Moses saw with his own eyes, that he saw in his, on his own hand. A hand diseased and healed. A, a, his own staff turning into a serpent and then picking it up from the ground and it turning back into a staff. He'd, he'd heard God's prediction of the future. He was looking at the burning bush. Right? God had revealed himself in power and he'd given him a detailed look at, ahead at how things would go. He'd patiently answered Moses' questions and most importantly, repeatedly, he'd promised himself to be with Moses and help him. I will be with you, he said. But in spite of all that, Moses was reluctant and unwilling, evidently because his faith in God was weak. Insecurity may be understandable, but it may also be sinful. Who was Moses to resist the call of the Almighty God? This called into question God's wisdom. Now, Moses surely would have appreciated God's intention to deliver Israel, maybe even believed that God could. But this part of his plan where, where Moses was to be God's agent, Moses was basically telling God, God, you've made a mistake. God, you've got the wrong person for the job. And by doing that... Moses was questioning the wisdom of God. And God's anger burned against Moses. Moses kept calculating, but he kept leaving God out of the equation. Moses kept looking to his own propensity to fail, and God kept pointing Moses to his ability to help him, his divine strength. To assist. And as God continued to point him to his ability to help and his promise to help, it's like Moses just ignored all that and kept looking back to his own weakness. I, I won't do this. This won't work. I will fail. God had promised Moses himself. But for Moses, evidently, he was worried that wouldn't be enough. That God wouldn't be enough. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is not a flattering portrait of Moses that is portrayed here. It's not a flattering portrait of Moses, which just in passing, this points us to the trustworthiness and reliability of these ancient scriptures. As, as uh, if this was merely a human writing just written by man, certainly the author would have desired to make himself look better. He wouldn't have revealed these, these low moments where his faith was so weak. Unless, of course, this was really what happened. It's not a flattering portrait of Moses that's painted here. But how would we, how would we respond to such pathetic unbelief in the face of so many assurances? You know, if we were in God's shoes, so to speak... What would our response have been to Moses as our anger burned against him? Many of us 
I probably would have thrown up our hands in frustration and said, that's it. You're hopeless, man. You know, I've, I've, what more can I give you than what I've said? I've meant to give you this special honor, but if you're insistent upon being a lifelong failure, then fine. I, I meant to honor you. I meant to give you this position of, of leading my people out, and I promised you my help. But fine, if that's the way you want it, I'll find someone else who will be, be more grateful and, and repay my kindness with less insults. But brothers and sisters, God is far more gracious and patient than we are, is He not? And amazingly, even though God's anger is, is noted, He doesn't reject Moses. You almost wouldn't know God was angry unless, unless it was written that He was. He doesn't reject Moses. He graciously tells Moses that, that Aaron, his brother, would help him, being his spokesperson, and, and God once again reassures him that he would be with both him and Aaron. Because Aaron, Aaron wouldn't be enough either. God would need to help both Moses and Aaron. He would be with both their mouths, teaching them both what to do. End of discussion. In, verse four, seven, in chapter 4, verse 17, God really ends the discussion by saying, And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. God's persistence finally overcame Moses' resistance. And Moses went. As verse 18 shows us, he, he goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, to go back to Egypt. And so that's kind of where the story ends. It's like, here's how God finally overcame Moses. Now from this, let's consider the main lessons that the Holy Spirit presents to us from this story. We've walked through the story and we spent the majority of our time there, but we want to draw out, like, what's the moral of the story? And first of all, we see that this story presents to us God as the Almighty Deliverer. God is the Almighty Deliverer. God, importantly, and not Moses, this emphasis is even clearer when we consider the context. Last week, how we considered the, the cry of the people of Israel, their prayer for rescue from their slavery, and how God heard their cry. Now, in contrast, Moses had seen the people, and he had compassion on them, but he was unable to deliver them. He had tried, but it ended up in him being exiled in Midian. But now, God... God, who has been at work behind the scenes, is brought into the story in a more prominent way here. God takes center stage, as it were, as he, in his words, has come down to deliver the people. And so in the context, we've read up to this point about Moses' failure, and it's setting us up to see that God's intervention is what makes the difference. God is the Almighty Deliverer. And as we come to later in Exodus, as we come to Exodus, uh, 9, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This God who reveals Himself in this burning bush, in this self-sustaining flame. You think about that for a moment. This bush was on fire and yet, it 
kept burning. The bush was not consumed. This fire needed nothing to fuel its ongoing burning. This is a picture of God's self-sufficiency, God's independence. He needs no one. He needs nothing. He, he reveals himself as I am who I am. And this highlights the unchangeableness of God, his self-existence, his, and possibly also his creatorship. There seems to be a nuance to the words in the Hebrew that also communicates I cause to be. The sun burns because God causes it to burn. Jupiter exists because God causes Jupiter to exist. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 And yet this God is also the God who keeps his promises. If you look at chapter 3 verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He's the God of their fathers who made promises to them and is keeping His promises to the letter without fail. And He can predict the future to Moses not as a passive observer who's like looked into a crystal ball or something, but as the one who governs the future because He created time itself and decreed what would be and what would happen in time and declares the end from the beginning. This God needs no help. He will never need help. This God is the Almighty. Come now to deliver the people of Israel here in Exodus. God is the Almighty Deliverer. And so, again, the question is, well, why would He use Moses? What's the point? What's the point in using Moses? And that this is another thing that this story highlights. It shows us God's power as the Almighty Deliverer, and then it contrasts Moses as this weak, this man weak in character, weak in faith, slow to believe God. Moses, the weak instrument of God's deliverance. God's chosen prophet, yes, God's chosen leader, yes. The one sent by God to bring the people out of Egypt, yes. And yet, a weak man. We've noted Moses' personal weakness, his insecurity. I mean, from what we can tell, he wasn't an alpha male. But God, God didn't need an alpha male to lead his people. He, he searched out this shattered old failure full of fears and insecurities, hiding in Midian, who spent the last four decades looking after his father-in-law's animals. This man who he would teach to be strong by teaching him to depend upon his strength. We've also noted Moses' moral weakness. It's very clear in this interaction with God. God got angry with Moses with good reason. The faith that had originally given Moses such courage to side with the Hebrews, no longer to be the called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughters, to embrace suffering if need be with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, that faith had apparently reached its low ebb. And so, bringing these two things together, 
the God, the Almighty Deliverer, Moses, the weak instrument of his deliverance, the main lesson of this story, as the Holy Spirit has inspired it and recorded it for us, is this, that Moses was God's appointed leader and prophet, and yet he was merely a weak man in the hands of the Almighty God. Moses was God's appointed leader and prophet, and yet he was merely a weak man in the hands of the Almighty God. God did not call Moses because he needed Moses. No, Moses would need God. Moses would not be an asset. Moses wasn't adding anything by joining God's team No, Moses would need God. And if you notice, whenever Moses points out his own weakness and inadequacy, what does God, how does God respond? All God really offers Moses is himself. And even when he sends Aaron again, he, he, he reminds Moses, and by adding Aaron, he's going to need my help too. So I'll be with his mouth too. It's worth noting how God reassured Moses. When Moses responds to God's call with, who am I that I should go to bring Pharaoh and, and bring the, to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Just think for a moment how our impulse, as we've kind of been trained by our culture, how our impulse would be to encourage someone with that kind of insecurity in that moment. You know, what would you say? You know, someone says, oh, who am I? I can't, I can't lead these people our impulse often is, is to say something like this. Now, now, Moses, hey, you're not giving yourself enough credit. Uh, stop doubting yourself, Moses. You're, you're strong. You can do this. I believe in you. I believe in you. But God doesn't encourage Moses in that way, does he? He, he doesn't point the insecure to look more deeply within himself to find some hidden reservoir of inner strength to tap into. Rather, God accepts Moses' low self-estimate. God doesn't argue with Moses about Moses' unworthiness. But God does reassure Moses gently. In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, But I will be with you. But I will be with you. God's presence, God with Moses and God with Moses and Aaron is what would make all the difference. So this story is about the insufficiency of Moses and the all-sufficiency of God. Moses was God's appointed leader and prophet, and yet he was merely a weak man in the hands of the Almighty God who was willing to help him. So brothers and sisters, as we, as we apply this to ourselves, God is a God who graciously uses weak people to fulfill His almighty plans. He uses us as well as, as He used Moses. We read in, as, as Brother Joe read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4-7, but we have this treasure, in other words, the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the gospel, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
This is the God who said to Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 11, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness. It's shown to be sufficient in our weaknesses. God is a God who graciously uses weak people to fulfill His mighty plans. And so, to return to the question that I asked at the beginning, why would God call us to join Him in His work? As his, uh, to be his, his chosen instruments, His servants. It's not to merit our salvation. We have nothing that we could offer God that could repay Him for the crimes we've committed against Him and the, our breaking of His law. It's not to merit our salvation. But as these verses that I've just read show us, it is to show His power. Because we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God chose a weak, shattered old failure, Moses, to show himself strong by using this man to bring his people out of Egypt. But it's also to bless us. God shows his power through using weak instruments but it's also to bless those weak instruments, to bless Moses and brothers and sisters, to bless us by deepening our dependence on him. Well, as we learn to lean on God as we've never had to do before in much deeper ways, as we, as we come to parenting or to marriage or to pastoring, being an elder in the church or to, to deaconing, or, or to whatever task God calls you to, and you look at it and you see how God has called you to carry it out, and you say, who is sufficient for these things? How can I, I can't do this. God, do you, do you see me? And we learn to lean on Him. We learn to lean on the One who is Almighty, because God, just as He used Moses, a weak man, in the hands of the Almighty God is a dangerous thing. He can bring down kingdoms. It's to bless us by deepening our dependence on Him. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.1, which Joe read earlier, it begins with these words. It says, We have this ministry by the mercy of God. It's a mercy from God, something to thank God for that we get to minister, that we get to serve Him. That's not us being kind to God. That's God being kind to us by giving us that opportunity and the honor of being used as His instruments so that His power might be shown in us and known to us. It's a mercy because it teaches us to lean on Him as we haven't had to do before. God does great things through us. And as He does so, let that humble us. Because we need to remember that God could have done those great things without us. So to Him be all the glory. God doesn't need us. Why does God use us? He doesn't need us. But He does call us as believers. 
weak though we be, sinful though we be, to a life in which his power is made known through us, and this is to bless us. And so in closing, let me just point out, this is, this is one of the benefits of the gospel, of Christ's saving work. You know, God calls Christians, those who trust in Christ, to be his servants. But there was one perfect servant of God, and it wasn't Moses. Definitely not Moses, as we've seen this morning. God's coming down to deliver his people Israel out of Egypt, that foreshadowed an even greater coming down to work an even greater deliverance as Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came down by taking on human flesh, taking the role of a servant, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, as he said, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because of his servanthood, because of his obedience, the many who believe are made righteous. According to Romans 5, though we and ourselves are weak and sinful and unworthy, Christ's death on the cross delivers us from the wages of our sin and the eternal death and hell that we deserve for all who believe. And so, my friend, if, if you're listening this morning, my question to you is, have you believed? Are you trusting in the perfect work, the perfect obedience of the only perfect servant of God and His death on the cross to save you from your sin? Having trusted Him, God not only saves us from our sin, He also saves us for service. As He graciously uses weak people to fulfill his mighty plans. And the God who saves us, just as he sent Moses, he sends us too. He says, go and make disciples. But just as he promised to be with Moses, he promises to be with us too. He says, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So may his all-sufficiency this week be displayed through our insufficiency. May his strength be made known through our weakness, and may he have all the glory now and forevermore.